Matthew 27 and Luke chapter 23. Uh, We're using the month of April to look at some of the most, well, I would say the most powerful words ever spoken. And those words are the final words Jesus spoke from the cross. And the reason I say it's the most powerful words is is they're they're not large statements. There are seven statements Jesus makes, but it is for the greatest battle that has taken place in all of history. And that battle is for your soul. So what is stated here matters. And, and when we think about Christianity, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the pinnacle. It is the foundation for which Christianity finds itself. In fact, the apostle Paul said in first Corinthians 15, if Jesus hasn't been resurrected from the grave, we are the most pitied of any people group because we rest our faith on that hope. What Jesus accomplished on the cross and seeing that to fruition through his resurrection is what gives us hope in our own resurrection. And so Jesus speaks these final seven statements from the cross. And last week we looked at the first one, which when Jesus goes to the cross, his, the first words he utters is a prayer for us. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we talked about the power of forgiveness and what that looks like for the forgiver and the forgiven. Interesting thing about the lack of forgiveness, when we hold on to unforgiveness in our lives, it traps us in the past because we're carrying out vengeance based on events in the past. But when we grab a hold of forgiveness, it allows us to walk in the newness of love. And the example for that for us was the cross of Christ. Because at the cross, Jesus paid for your sins and put that in the past so that you could experience forgiveness. And through that forgiveness, experience love in him today. God is love. God does love. And when we are forgiven in Christ, we get to walk in the appreciation and experience that love for which he desires to lavish on us. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. And we see in Jesus that when he goes to the cross, I think when Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, uh, the particularity of that moment, I think he's specifically praying for those that are around him. Now, God's forgiveness transpires beyond that. It is available for all of us. But the reason I think when Jesus is at the cross praying, Father, forgive them, that he's just referencing those at the cross is because Jesus is righteous. And it is unjust for him to die in those moments at the hand of these individuals. And rather than see God bring fury from heaven to bring judgment against these people, Jesus prays for their forgiveness. But it's an interesting thought at the cross that when God could call legions of angels to attack, he chooses rather to forgive. And today we're going to look now at the practicality of such a statement. That when Jesus prays this prayer, he also lives it out. He expresses this forgiveness in these moments on the cross in a very personal way. And he shows us how forgiveness brings two thoughts, relationship and reconciliation. Now, even you as an individual, you can be a forgiving person, but you can't force another heart. Just because you're forgiven, forgiving doesn't mean the other person is forgiven. And it's like in relationship to Jesus, Jesus is forgiving to us. But it's not until we come to Christ for that forgiving spirit of which he provides that we're actually forgiven. We need his forgiveness. And in that being forgiven, we find reconciliation and relationship. Because God is a God of reconciliation, we're called to be people of reconciliation. Being a forgiving people doesn't mean you go in this world and you try to force people into forgiveness. It means we just simply open up the door for those when they are ready to find forgiveness. In, in the book of Matthew, you see Jesus praying this prayer and, and someone in, within the context of this story is about to find that forgiveness in Jesus. Um, if you're familiar with the cross of Christ, most of us are aware that 
When Jesus was crucified, he was crucified between two criminals. You probably refer to them as either thieves or robbers. That's how the text of scripture describes them. And I don't think it was any accident Jesus was crucified between two thieves. In fact, I think an incredible story comes out of this for us. But even Isaiah 53 and verse 12 says this, that Jesus was was numbered with his transgressors. But you know, when we relate to these thieves, there isn't much we know about them. Not even oral tradition teaches us anything about these thieves. We don't know who they were, if they had family, what their names were, what crimes they committed exactly. Uh, In in Jesus' day, the word thief was actually more of a blanket statement for a criminal. Uh, They most likely had stolen something, but, but to warrant crucifixion, it had to be something pretty severe. I mean, they just didn't steal an apple from the marketplace, right? Uh, what they stole, it could have been someone's life, it could have been someone's innocence, but whatever it was, it, it warranted crucifixion to satisfy the justice in Rome. When you, when you read a story about these, these two individuals, and I, I think really anyone in Scripture, whether they're someone that's walking in, in truth or someone that's opposed to God, I think it's good for our souls not to distance ourselves from relating to them. Now, that might be a little shocking because this morning I'm, I'm going to tell you how you're like the thief on the cross, okay? But, but don't worry, I want to end this with some hope, all right? But you, you could even ask the question, okay, thief on the cross being crucified, like, okay, I, I know I've done some things in my life, right? But how in the world are you going to relate me to a thief? But I would say the power of this story is seen in how you connect to what happens in the life of this thief. When you read um, Jesus' presentation of his kingdom, which the gospels are full of his kingdom. You know, you you think on Sunday morning you gathered and you went to church. Now, you didn't actually come to church. You are the church. Like Jesus dwells within us. Wherever we are, we worship. But we congregate as God's people, as the church. But here's the interesting thing about church. Um, The gospels only use the word church three times. But did you know over 70 times Jesus talks about the kingdom? In fact, most of the time when Jesus talks about his kingdom, he's not talking about the future, he's talking about the present. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus starts uh, this declaration of his kingdom. In the very first verses, it tells us he goes up on this mountain and he, he begins to deliver the very first message he shares with people. And when Jesus starts his message... Um, It it is an incredible beginning because in Jesus' day, religious people like the Pharisees or even people that worshipped in other religions, they saw things that happened to them as either favor or judgment from God. So if they're in bad, bad experiences in life, the gods are against them. And if they're the elite of society, then the gods are for them. They're, uh, they're, they're the untouchables in a positive way. Right? Like people look at them and think, they're so wonderful, we could never be like them. Like in the Jewish day, that was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious elite. You can't be like them, right? And God loves those people. But then when Jesus presents his kingdom in Matthew 5, listen to this. Rather than talk about the spiritual elite, this is where he starts. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus' kingdom picture isn't about the elite. 
It's about the broken. In fact, I would even say in looking at the beginning of his introduction of of his kingdom and, and sharing this message that Jesus would rather have one broken spirit than 10,000 self-righteous Pharisees. God works in that heart. To the self-righteous, they see no need for Jesus. But to those who hunger, to those who are broken, that's what his kingdom is about. And then in this presentation, Jesus does something interesting. We'll get to Matthew 27 in just a minute, but Jesus does something interesting in Matthew 21. Verse 21 in chapter 5. He, he then goes here, he says, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Again, how is this relevant to you, right? Like, I mean, how many murderers do we have present today? Um, Jesus loves you, but... but um, and, and then verse 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, here we have in this story, Jesus starts with the broken in spirit, right? But then as you follow his message for two, three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus preaches. Then he goes after the really self-righteous. And he wants them to see their need for God. And the way he does it is through these verses here. He starts with these verses. And he, and he starts talking about the murderer. And he starts talking about adultery, Right? And, and, but then he makes it a little personal. So in, in Jewish law, they would look at these laws and be like, you know, I never killed anybody or I've never committed adultery. And Jesus says, you know, that's great that outwardly this has never happened in your life. But the problem isn't just the behavior. The problem that rests in your heart. So Jesus takes it a step further. So rather than just modifying our behavior to show our self-righteousness, Jesus is saying what really needs to transform happens with inside of you, Right? And so I think we can see this in the story, but let me just ask the question. I alluded to this passage last week, but let me just ask this question. Because sometimes I don't think we get the full picture of what Jesus is communicating with these thoughts here. Have you ever stopped to wonder why Jesus picks these two sins? Like out of all the things Jesus could have said as an illustration, like murder, like that seems like a very, are you talking to a, a, a jail here? Like this is a very limited crowd of people. Like if you want to get something more relevant for us in life, I, I could think of a lot more sins to pick than just murder, right? Why, why, is, why is Jesus picking this? And then he takes it a step further and said, anger in your heart's what produces murder. I think the reason Jesus picks these two sins is because under Jewish law, the punishment for these sins was death. And what Jesus is doing by taking these sins a step further to talk about anger and lust in your heart is he's recognizing in our lives all of us are guilty. So when you think about the thief and you think, okay, what do I have relevant with this thief in my life? Honestly, the difference between us and the thief is that we have the same sin that rests in our heart. It's just the thief played it out in his actions. But on our heart rests death. Now, let me back away and say that I'm so thankful in reading this verse that Jesus started where he did in the Sermon on the Mount because rather than just stand before you and sin and just say, I'm a piece of garbage, what you see in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 and the reason Jesus started here, blessed are the poor in spirit, is because in the midst of the brokenness of that sin, we can recognize, and I'm loved, and God wants to desire to do something new in me, and, and God has an identity for me, And there is hope for me. 
And so when you think about the thief on the cross, what, what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 5 is the consistency of, of something they did throughout all of his ministry, all the way to the cross, that in the midst of our sin, God provides a place for all of us to come to him to find that newness in our lives for which he is creating for us on the cross. And so here's how it transpires in Matthew chapter 27. It starts in verse 38. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him. One on the right, and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him. And the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. And it just shares the story. Like when Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he didn't have a friend in the world. Everyone's mocking him in these moments. Everyone's cursing him. I mean, we're celebrating Palm Sunday today. This is the day traditionally where they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which means save us now. And just a few days later, crucify. All the way down to the robbers even joining in. I mean, they're choosing to use the last hours of their lives, not to say I'm sorry to their mamas, but to curse at Jesus. Mocking him. And then something interesting happens. Luke 23. We'll pick up where we left off last week in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there were hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, and said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Two thieves ridiculing him. And now Luke shows us one thief has a change of heart. Why did he change his mind? You know, when I think about this, this is a little speculative, but I don't think one thing led the thief to change his heart towards the Lord. I think it was likely a series of interactions. Most likely, the thief was aware of Jesus and heard the stories of Christ. The thief heard Jesus speak his few words from the cross. I mean, like the Roman soldier, the thief saw how Jesus embraced the cross, which is probably one of the most shocking things. Like we shared this a little bit last week, like these two thieves were, were crucified before Jesus. And, and when they went to the cross, I mean, you think if someone's about to nail you on the cross and this is your last ditch effort to not hang from a cross, to have nails pierced through your body until you suffocate to death, I, I can tell you how that's going to go down for me. Every chance I get to bite you, I'm going to rip off your ear, spit on you, yell at you, whatever. If it's leading to the cross, I am kicking and screaming gone all the way and finally they get these two pinned down right but then Jesus comes and how does he take the cross he embraced it it's like he laid his life down willingly can I tell you one of the most incredible things about what makes Jesus sufficient for you is that he paid for you willingly Before an eternal God, sin is to be paid for for eternity because God is eternal. But here in this story, eternal God pays for our sin in a finite moment. And the reason he's adequate 
It's because one, he was spotless, and two, he was willing. Jesus didn't have to go to that cross. He could have brought himself down. No one really crucified Jesus. He laid his life down. This criminal sees this. And he sees Jesus pray for his enemies. The thief had even represented himself as an enemy, cursing at Jesus, and Jesus prayed for him. And perhaps the thought of the thief is if God can forgive all these people who mocked and beat and crucified and spit on him, perhaps God could forgive him. And this thief comes to Jesus who modeled that love and forgiveness. I mean, he prays that Father forgive them. And he comes to this Jesus that declared this kingdom, blessed are those who um, hunger and thirst, blessed are those who are broken in spirit. Jesus could have called angels down at any moment. Yet Jesus chooses to bear our sins and forgive. You know, I think about the demonstration of Jesus in this moment and how that helped bring the change in this thief's heart. I think about our own lives. How we respond. No doubt in your life, you, you, you have people that may not like you. If you don't now, you might in the future. How do you react? What's motivating you in response to that? Honor to yourself or to the Lord? I mean, has your attitude been one where you feel, even when someone's against you, that you have the opportunity still to share the gospel to that person without shame? Could you imagine this thief in this moment if Jesus had just responded with fury because he would have been just to do so. But rather it's in grace that when his heart finally is sensitive to the Lord, that gospel of grace and forgiveness resonates. It's like this. Someone cuts you off on the interstate. And the next exit you have to get off for gas and lo and behold, you're standing behind them in line. How would you feel if you had to share the gospel with them? What if they were just saying to the cashier in front of them, man, I really need to know Jesus, right? Like, and you're thinking, oh, man, I told you you were number one when you went by with the wrong finger, right? Ashamed to share? Or did you walk with grace? And Jesus in this moment does this for this thief. And, and here's the most incredible thing, the irony of this all. When you think about Jesus' crucifixion, all his friends, the crowds that follow him. The irony of this story is the only person that stands to defend Jesus in these moments. Not that Jesus needs defended, but the only person that rises up and says anything. It's the criminal. It's the one on the cross. I mean, the only words that you have positively spoken relating to Jesus, to anyone that's connected to him at all in these final moments of his life, and it's the criminal hanging on the cross. And then he utters these words in verse 42. And he was saying to Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Now we may not catch it in this phrasing, but these words are are very powerful in the day of Jesus. I mean, he's referencing Jesus' kingdom, which Jesus talked about. But when you talk about a kingdom, you're automatically representing if if Jesus is the one who, who, who uplifts this kingdom, who rules this kingdom, then that makes Jesus the what? King. 
Every kingdom has a king. And in these moments, he's confessing Jesus as king. In the time of Christ, the word that we will read in scripture when they're referencing Jesus as king is Lord. But the interesting thing about this statement is in Jesus' day to confess this statement about Christ. I mean, that would get you killed. In the time of Jesus in the early church, to say uh, Jesus is Lord was to go against Rome because during the time of the Romans, Caesar was Lord, Kaiser Kyrgios. They showed loyalty to him because he was the king, it was his kingdom, and they believed Caesar to be God. To pronounce another king in this kingdom. That could be the end of your life. And here is this thief turning to Jesus in submission. I am no longer Lord of my life, but you are. And Jesus gives this incredible statement. Steve thief on the cross is an incredible story to share, not just at Easter really, but at any time with anyone. And, and Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. What does that mean? This shocking statement of pronunciation Jesus gives over a criminal. And in this story, you see how powerful Jesus' forgiveness is. Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And Jesus demonstrates the incredible grace of his forgiveness by coming to this criminal and saying, forgiveness. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, some people don't like this statement by Jesus because the, the thief, if you think about it, he never did a single work for God. He never served God. He never tithed. He was baptized. No religious work. Yet, what does Jesus say and promise to him? Today, for you, paradise. What exactly is paradise? Out of a disdain that, to, to think that someone could be in the same presence in eternity with a thief, they assume that obviously there is heaven and then there's paradise, and paradise must be a lower form of heaven because the thief doesn't deserve God's best. I mean, it's nice Jesus is being gracious to him, but, but where exactly is this thief? The truth is, no one's getting to heaven by what they do. We get to heaven because of what Jesus has done. And that's the shocking, profound, powerful, gracious, forgiving statement of the story. That in our self-righteousness, when we like to think it's about us, though we're created in God's image, though we are important, it's about him. In fact, when you look at the word paradise, I think it's important just to get an idea of exactly what Jesus is promising this thief. And, and Paul, in a wonderful passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he really defines for us what paradise is. And he, he, he starts off in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in body I do not know or out of body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Now, what in the world is that? <laughs> Jews had an interesting way of describing heaven. You can imagine in a day and age where you didn't have a telescope to look into outer space, how you might look into the expanse of the, of the sky and conceive what waits out there. Here you are on earth and you see the glory, the radiance of God and all of his creation. And the Jews in describing and thinking about God in heaven, what they did is they categorized layers to the atmosphere. Some Jews had as many as seven. But the most popular view, which Paul holds here for the Jewish people, is three. 
And the way Jews categorically saw heaven is they, they talked about the expanse where the birds dwelled and the clouds were. That was referred to in their theology as the first heaven. The place where the stars were, that was the second heaven. But the place where God dwelled, and the only place where God dwelled, was the celestial, and that was referred to as the third heavens. And so the Jewish mind, when they talked about being in the presence of God, for them it was always the third heaven. In fact, you, you can read about the expanse of the heavens like Psalm 19. It talks about the heavens declare your glory, God. And they're thinking about all of creation, everything beyond us, and all that God has made the layers where the birds dwell, to the stars, to where God himself is. The presence of God. The third heaven. But then Paul does something interesting because he's writing to a dualistic audience here. So whether out of body, I, I know not, or I, I do not know, God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And he says this, verse 3, And I know how such a man, whether in the body or part from the body, I do not know. God knows, verse 4, was caught up, look at this, into paradise and heard the inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. What's Paul doing here? He's writing to both a Jew and Gentile audience. To the Jew, they understood what the third heaven was. It was the celestial presence of God. And to the Gentile word, their picture of heaven was paradise. It was a Persian word and its derivative. Their idea of this, bliss, this blissful garden of which they would live. And so Paul is taking both of these pictures of heaven and he's showing them as one word by, by interconnecting or intertwining these two words as using them as exchangeable within this text. In our culture today, we don't have multiple words to refer to the... Well, I mean, we have words, individual words to refer to the atmosphere and to the, into the universe and the galaxies. And then we have one word to talk about heaven. And when the Jews talk about third heaven, that is their picture where God dwells. In fact, I would say it like this. The the Christian picture of heaven is one place in the presence of God. It's the most inclusive heaven of God's people. When you think about religions and their pictures of heaven, different religions have different ideas of what heaven is like. But for the Christians, because of not what we do, but because of what Jesus has done, when we trust in that, our promise is all of us together as one big family in his presence forever. And to the thief, Jesus promises this. What was the thief's worst day of life has become filled with the greatest expectation of hope because of the grace of God in his life. You ask people today, how do you get to heaven? The response often is because I'm a good person. The unfortunate part of that statement is it bypasses the cross altogether and identifies us as the one that merits our salvation based on our ability. But the Christian answer isn't, I get to heaven because I'm a good person, but rather, I get to heaven because I'm a forgiven person. It's not what we do, it's what's been done. That's why for us, the thief becomes the greatest illustration of the grace and forgiveness of God not even able to lift an arm because it's nailed to a tree. Yet God forgives and promises him an eternity with him. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I love this phrase in Hebrews 10.14. It says, for by one offering, one offering Jesus made, he hath perfected forever those that are sanctified or set apart for Christ. 
Jesus in one offering covers my past, present, and future sin that would separate me from him so that I could experience that joy for which he has created me for in him. I want to be frank and say, while I love the promise of paradise for believers, the most powerful thought in Jesus' statement isn't the idea of paradise. The most powerful thought in the statement is the words Jesus speaks right before that when he says, he says in this, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Because the only reason paradise can happen is because the presence of God is made known in his life. And the truth is what makes heaven heaven is God's presence. Revelation 21, that we will no longer have tear in our eye, but we will be present with our king. Jesus makes heaven heaven. And for us today, that phrase is still important. That Jesus is with you. God is with you. You think about this as a thief on the cross. People mocking you and shaving, shaming you. In, in these moments, on public display, is your fall. And what does he hear from God? You are wanted. You are loved. God has a plan for your life. Now, in the mind of the thief, the idea of paradise is important because he's at the end of his life, and what hope does he have? He's just moments from his breath, so he knows the final moments that he closes his eyes, what awaits him, right? And the promise of paradise is important for you. Like, what's going to happen to you when you die? Knowing that secure helps you walk a little more confident in your day, right? God loves me. I mean, if he can forgive the thief that's nailed to the cross that never did anything, God can forgive me. He cares about me. He wants to be with me. He created me for that reason, right? Uh, But when we think about paradise, look, here's the danger, guys. Sometimes Christians see the gospel just in terms of paradise. Meaning, The gospel's preached, salvation is brought, Jesus rescues our soul, eternity is promised, and then we sort of forget about today because we're thinking about tomorrow. Even Christian hymns, like we'll get together and we'll sing songs sometimes, and everything's singing about when we all get to heaven, you know, however that goes, or I mean, I'll fly away, you know, just pick a song, right? All about getting in heaven. Here's the problem if you focus so much on heaven. Christians that are just focused on heaven become no earthly good. You just sort of hear the gospel and think you got your get out of hell free card. You twitter your thumbs just waiting for the day. But the important part to think about and consider is Jesus' kingdom is bigger than that. When Jesus talked about his kingdom over 70 times in the gospels and most often when he referred to his kingdom, it was dealing with the present. Jesus' presence is with you. Even the disciples, when they thought about uh, Jesus and what he represented in this kingdom, look what they said about Christ in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, this is after Jesus' resurrection. He's been with his disciples 40 days. And they're talking with Jesus. This is his last moments on earth before he ascends into heaven. They'd come together. They were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom into Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the time or epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So he's like, look, guys, you guys are all just thinking about, you know, what's coming tomorrow, Right? 
But he says in verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. What Jesus is saying is that his, his resurrection doesn't just matter tomorrow. It makes right now matter today. Jesus is saying, stop focusing on tomorrow to the neglect of where God wants to lead you today. In fact, Paul said in Romans 8, verse 11, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And you think about the story of the thief on the cross. You will be with me in paradise. What incredible power. What incredible forgiveness. How great is that God? And then you think about your own life, and now you can say, and thinking about Romans 8 and Acts 6, and that same resurrection power that moved that way in, in, in the life of the thief to, thief to transform his life for all of eternity is with me right now. What does that mean? How should you respond? How should you pray? Or what should you do? You think about the thief. God th- promise, promises this thief his presence for eternity because this is all the remaining th- hope that the thief had. His days were done. Right? But for those that don't have to worry so much about tomorrow because they're, they have the ability to focus on today, it's good to be reminded we can be so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good. And sometimes when we think about the life of this thief, I know religious tendency within our heart wells up to say, you know, I'm not, I'm not that guy. I'm better than that, right? But when I think about this story as it relates to our lives, you know, I like to think, guys, that sometimes, sometimes as Christians, we confuse our battlefield. And Jesus, I think, has these moments at the end of, of in his life, the cross, so that this story can shock us. To say to us, look, the thief isn't the target for us because we're against the thief. Rather, the thief is the target for us because we're for him. Just as Jesus fought the battle on the cross for his soul, so Jesus fought the battle for your soul, and he calls you to join him in that battle for the souls of others just like this thief. Because all of our hearts, all of our hearts need that grace. That's what the presentation of his kingdom was about in Matthew chapter 5. So you think about gathering as God's people. Here we are on Sunday. Sunday for us shouldn't be the ending point to our week. But rather the starting point And the call of Christ to make a difference. Jesus went to battle for this thief. And in relating to Christ in our lives, him as king and his kingdom, we belonging to this kingdom now represent this kingdom. So we go into battle representing our king who by his grace transforms lives. If the thief matters, everyone matters. In this room. 
how we encourage, how we see this story as a launching point for what Jesus wants to do in our soul, recognizing that that resurrection power that brought Jesus from the grave rests in us today because God's presence is with us. It's important. And greater than that, beyond these walls, the relationships that you have, the way that you react when you stand in line at the gas station having told people they're one. Are you using the right finger? (laughs) The story of this cross is hope for everyone so that we can rest in the power and the presence of Jesus today. Paradise is great, and I'm glad in Jesus we belong there. But so is his presence right now and his kingdom made known in your hearts that you could release it into this world by caring for the souls around you. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.